Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to another edition of Meet the Education Researcher. My name is Neil Selwyn and I work in Monash University, Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of these podcasts is really simple. We spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. Now today I've got a special guest from the UK, Patrick White, Associate Professor from Leicester University School of Media, Communication and Sociology. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm fine, Neil. Now, I really want to talk to you about your work in research methods, especially your book on research questions and the sensible use of statistics. But before we get into that, can you give us a flavour of your own research? What issues and topics and problems are you interested in yourself? I started off during my PhD looking at the career and educational choices and aspirations of 16-year-olds. So they were at the end of compulsory schooling and beginning to kind of specialise in what they wanted to do. I've also since then looked at patterns of lifelong learning, particularly in relation to access to the internet. And currently I'm working, looking at the supply of STEM graduates, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to the wider workforce. Now, is there a theme to that kind of research? You seem to be looking at patterns and big pictures, using secondary data, maybe generating your own data. My PhD thesis was almost entirely based on uh, semi-structured interviews but since then I've used a lot more secondary data. Now I'm the, the reason for me asking those questions is I'm really interested how you got into then doing research methods. I mean how did your own work kind of lead you into being a kind of research methods person? One thing that was very important was that after my PhD I started working for a research capacity building project. This was funded by the Economic and Social Research Council that funds a lot of the social science research in the UK and I worked as a researcher on that project and it exposed me to a much wider variety of research methods clued me up to the idea of research design as separate to research methods and also gave me a kind of idea of what people were and weren't doing in education research in the UK in terms of the methods. So your research career has been kind of shaped more by your postdoc than by your actual PhD? Definitely. My PhD is very different from the work that I do now. It didn't use much secondary data at all. I think secondary data has become a lot more easy to access and easy to use and of course crucially it's available to most academics for free so it's not nearly as expensive as doing primary field work. Now I refer to you flippantly as you're now a research person I mean in some ways I think that's a really odd thing to say all researchers should be research people we all use research we all deal with research I mean, why do you think so many people avoid giving careful thought to methods let alone taking methods on as a focus for their scholarship? Teaching research often is seen as the short straw in departments I, my experience is everybody's very happy to tell you how you should be teaching methods and what you should teach but they're much less keen to do it themselves so in terms of people's relationship with methods. I think it's quite common for people to carry on using the same methods that they used in their PhD for their entire careers. And we're not very good, I think, academics at being, especially in education, at being lifelong learners in methods. People are often uncomfortable with trying out and using things that are very different 
different designs or different ways of analyzing analyzing their data that they're not they haven't done before. I love this idea of people having a relationship with methods. You very rarely hear people talking about methods in that way. I think methods, when people are pushed, become a strong part of their identity. People identify themselves as an ethnographer or as a qualitative researcher or as a quantitative researcher or even in psychology people saying oh well I'm an ANOVA researcher or I'm a multi-level yeah, yeah, yeah. modeler so p people you know though they may not teach methods or write about methods much they certainly when pushed have a kind of identity that's quite close with different types of methods. Which explains why people get into the habit of just doing one thing one method one way of doing analysis. Yeah there's a there's a very interesting idea and I can't remember the author now um, I think it's Jane Sick talked about methodolatry that people almost have this kind of religious fervor about yeah, yeah. certain certain kinds of methods and it it produces a very blinkered view of what they will and won't do and I think quite dangerously it becomes unnecessarily connected to particularly particular philosophical positions so people often I think make post hoc rationalizations about what they're doing not in terms of the skills that they have or their expertise, but in some kind of appeal to a philosophical position so that they end up saying, well, I can't do that because I don't believe in it. Methods as religion, excellent. Now I wanted to focus on the first of your two successful methods books, this developing research questions. Now most people talk about just coming up with research questions as kind of like something that you do in five minutes. Presumably the idea of developing suggests a much more careful ongoing process. If I can just take a step back, to the research capacity building project, the, the reason I got interested in this was I was asked to write a working paper on research questions. And I quickly found out that either I wasn't very good at doing literature research or there actually wasn't very much literature out yeah, yeah. there. So I got a contract for this book simply because textbooks at the time didn't have much on research questions. Some of them didn't mention them in their glossary or appendix. And I thought that there needed to be one because students find it really hard to come up with research questions. Well, staff find it really hard. Yeah, if you ask an academic what their research questions are, they probably won't give you a research question. Mm. They'll say, I'm researching this or I'm researching around this topic. They're very vague. And if you look, as I have done, at published outcomes, the majority of articles, substantive articles, don't have research questions. or. Lots of them don't even have aims, hypotheses, or anything like that. Now, I was going to ask you, what do people tend to get wrong about developing research questions? But you seem to be hinting that people don't even have research questions. Yeah, I mean, I think the first problem is people don't have research questions. And that's a problem because, as in most of the things I've written, I've said the most thing, important thing about research questions is that they guide the design of your study, what data you're looking for, etc. So if you don't have research questions, you're kind of, you know, loose without an anchor. In terms of the problems with research questions, students, especially undergraduates, come up to me and say, I want to prove this or I want to show that. So that's not really a question. I think academics are guilty of this, but probably less explicitly in terms, in terms of what they do. And knowing what you want to find out before you've even yes, found it out. Exactly. Um, I think with students, um, you know, this includes PhD students I've, that I've recently come into contact, they're, they're overambitious. I recently did a progress review for a PhD student who's got some very interesting ideas and he was a year into his PhD and I said this all looks great but it's 50 years work for a team of people. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I concentrate on in my advice, my practical advice, is making something researchable and that has to be researchable in terms of where you are at that point. 
So something that's researchable for a team of academics might not be researchable for a PhD student and their research might not be researchable for a master's down to an undergraduate and so on. So there's researchability in practical terms, but also in kind of conceptual terms. What kind of questions can social science empirical research answer? I was going to ask you, there's only supposed to be seven types of stories. So I guess there's a finite amount of types of research questioning. One of the things people do, I think, as well as having too many research questions, is they're not clear about what type of research questions they're asking. So there's two basically types of questions. What questions, asking descriptive questions, and why questions which look for explanations. Uh, one of the big things that people confuse, <laughs> people confuse my, my initial writing on it, and hopefully I'm clearer now, is that why questions are quite vague. Mm. And we all talk about why questions, but when planning your research, the important thing about why questions is to break them down into what sort of question you're asking. So there are some authors, and, and I agree with them, that say break your why question down into a what or a where question, because why questions can look for motives, they can look for structural uh, constraints, they can look for all sorts of different things. So at the beginning of the research, one of the most important things is to look at your why questions in detail and think about what data am I actually looking for. Mm. And I was also interested in this new book that you're writing, Sensible Statistics. So is the inference here that most researchers don't make sensible use of statistics? I thought statisticians were eminently sensible people. Statisticians are one of the most dogmatic groups of people ever, I think. And I think it's important to distinguish between statisticians and people that use statistics. Right. So people that use statistics generally just do what they're taught. But since the 1920s, statistics has been caught in a kind of particular rut that I and various other people now don't think are very helpful. Now, it's hard coming up with this name for a statistics textbook that will stand out. So. We ca I came up with sensible statistics because it's alliterative, it has a sort of practical, you know, uh, feeling to it. The publishers didn't always like it. They said, does this assume that everybody else isn't sensible? Yeah, and yeah. I said, no more than your book, Statistics Without Tears, suggests that everybody else is teaching reduces students to tears. <laughs> so yeah, fair th there, is a, there is an element that I don't think the direction that statistics go has gone in for the last 80 or 90 years is particularly sensible. So um, how should we be sensible about statistics? What the, what's the thrust of the book? The thrust of the book is that inferential statistics, which almost dominates all statistics teaching and statistics use, is fundamentally flawed and that we should go back to what's often sort of maligned as, as descriptive statistics. Mm. So we need to go back to saying what we have with our data not being preoccupied with statistically inferring to our population because it's impossible to do so. It doesn't mean that we can't make inferences about our representativeness of our findings, but it means that the current way that this is being done doesn't work. Now you've written a lot with colleagues about the misuses of inferential statistics, the need to move on from blind use of p-values and so on. And this has been a really kind of controversial and kind of vicious set of arguments. I mean, what, why are people so angry and upset about this? Well, as with a lot of methods, people are very attached to what they do and very reluctant, as you might expect, to say what I've been doing my entire career isn't right. Now, as academics, we should be very happy to do that kind of thing. But uh, obviously, for human nature, it's not very comfortable. And there are two big problems with the inferential statistics as they're currently practiced. Firstly, the mathematical assumptions 
that we need to use them are never met. So the maths doesn't work, the answers are wrong. But what they do tell us, even if we use them with perfect data where the assumptions are made, they don't tell us what we want to know. And they work internally in terms of the maths, but in terms of the logic, they don't provide us with the useful information that we want to know, yeah, yeah. which is about an inference from a random sample to a population. So it comes back again to what you were saying before about using things for their own sake and because you've always done it rather than it being the best fit. Now, finally, I wanted to move away from books and touch upon your forays into YouTube. I mean, you've been recording lectures about SPSS and sticking the videos online. This sounds like a pretty dull thing to be doing, but it's turned out to be quite successful. Yeah, it was quite a tedious exercise. I had to learn software. I had to listen to my own voice when I was editing things, which wasn't very comfortable. I basically made the decision at some point that I didn't want to spend half of the time with my students teaching them to use a software package. Students are very good nowadays at picking up new software packages. Things that are menu orientated are very similar to what they use. And I felt if I could put the software stuff online, I could minimize how much time I spent in class on that. So now I can spend 90% of my lecture and seminar time explaining the conceptual stuff, answering questions, and they can spend as much time as they want on their own time learning the software at their own pace. So were these videos just watched by your own students? I think they got quite a few more hits than that. They were made for my own students. I made them for my second year and master's introductory classes, and I put a couple of extra videos in for dissertation students who'd be entering their own data. Um, I did it for my teaching. I didn't promote it in any way, but now they've had nearly half a million views in about four years. Which is insane. I mean, who on earth is watching it? What kind of comments are you getting? Um, well, I've turned the comments off <laughs> yeah, because of I was a bit nervous about them and likes and things like that. But I've got, you know, a few thousand subscribers. Teachers in other organizations who've used them have, have emailed me and said I found them really useful. But the, the big thing for me is that I don't think my book, my Sensible Statistics book, which is taking a different approach to statistics teaching, would have got a contract if I hadn't proven yeah, yeah. that there was a market for my approach online. So the benefits of being internet famous is that you end up getting book contracts and are seen as being serious. Yeah, I, and I think that's the case with publishing kind of more widely. If you've got a new idea that's unproven, they publishers want to see that it's worked online, you know, as a blog or as a YouTube channel or something like that. Excellent. Well, that all sounds really, really interesting. Thanks ever so much for stopping by and look forward to reading the new book. Thank you.